So we are going to be in Acts 14 this morning, continuing to think about the mission of God and the way that the church, the people of God, participate in that mission. And the reality that that harvest and hardship, that, that the growth of the church and also resistance and difficulty uh, to that growth often come together at, at, at the same or, or connected times. Probably have shared before that uh, I love music, I'm sure many of you do, and that for me often particular albums or kinds of music are, are sort of like soundtracks for particular seasons in my life. And when I was in my early 20s back in college, there was this album that came out by a folk singer named Dennis and Whitmer. Probably not really a household name, an indie artist, uh, but the album was called Of Joy and Sorrow. And uh, it's an apt description for actually most of his music. Uh, Dennison Whitmer has this kind of melancholy side to him and his voice. Many of his songs describe uh, loss or change. You know, when you're in your 20s, lots of things are changing in your life or the loneliness you might experience, um, the sorrow. But then there's also kind of a, a connection of his music to linger over beautiful things and good things and the things that um, make us human and that we love. And so it, it seems strange to us that the joy and sorrow, even though they're kind of opposite or opposing um, experiences or emotions, they often seem to show up in the same spaces, in the same times, in the same seasons of our lives. And I think if I reflect on my own process of, of discipleship, of, of walking with God, of growing in faith, um, that the, the same thing could probably be observed there. I don't know if, if that's true of you. If you look back, often when God has been most deeply at work in my life, uh, it's been in the midst of difficulties, of times of resistance, of, of stuff that just was not easy to go through. But God was also stirring up and, and doing encouraging things in the midst of that. I would actually go so far as to say rarely have I experienced the mission of God in my life kind of moving forward under ideal circumstances, right? Maybe we, we get little seasons where things, the, the waters are calm, but more often than not, the mission of God moves forward with, with real people, with problems, difficult and hard situations, right? The joy and the sorrow together. Last week, we watched as uh, the church in Antioch begins to grow. I'm going to try and keep these notes from blowing away. But the, the Holy Spirit is working in this new community in Antioch, and as part of them trusting and discerning the Spirit's leading, they are called to send away, right, Paul and Barnabas on this new mission. They release them from, from the church there, uh, and they go to the island of Cyprus and they travel there. They find an audience with uh, what's really kind of the governor, the, one of the key leaders of the island, a guy named Sergius Paulus. Uh, and even in that audience, there's resistance. There's someone antagonizing them even as they begin to share with him. Uh, but the, the word of God, uh, the message of Jesus is received. And probably through uh, the positive reception uh, of Sergius Paulus and his household, there is a door open for them to sail north. So they leave Cyprus, they go up to Asia Minor, they go up into the mountains there. And uh, we're told they enter the synagogue at Poseidon Antioch, which is this 
the city up in the mountains. And the rest of chapter 13, which we didn't cover last week, unpacks uh, what happens once they enter the synagogue there. Right, we get this example of, of Paul's preaching uh, to a Jew and Gentile audience. And in that message, uh, we're, we're told that Paul kind of focuses on the promises God has made, the promises he made to Abraham, the promises he made to David, uh, the promises God spoke through the prophets, and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those things in a new way, just in this generation of, of Paul's own life. These things are coming into fulfillment. God's unleashing this new creation reality through the person of Jesus. And it says in chapter 13 that as that message is proclaimed, many, uh, it says the word, of Lord, the, the word of the Lord spread through the region and many come to faith. But as that, that mission is spreading and people are responding in Poseidon Antioch, we see that quickly resistance shows up as well. The next few verses say, uh, there near the end of 13, that God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of that city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they are expelled from the region. So we've got the good and the hard, right? Right there together. And so Paul and Barnabas, then they're, they're, they're no longer welcome in the city. They take the, the eastern way out of the city. They go on the Roman road headed east further into the mountains. And they set their sights on this city called Iconium, which is uh, about a hundred miles journey through these mountain roads. And I'm, I'm trying to picture Paul and Barnabas on the road, right? They've got a lot of miles to walk. They've got time to unpack what just happened. Right? And how did they reflect on, on what this mission, right? The Holy Spirit said, you're supposed to go, you're supposed to do this, go to these places, preach the gospel in these communities. But how do, they, how do they unpack what they've just experienced? On the one hand, Poseidon Antioch now has a, a, a new church. There's a, a faith community of people following Jesus. Verse 52 in chapter 13 says that the disciples they're leaving behind in that city are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, the leaders of that city just chased them out of town, right? They resisted them, opposed them directly to their faces. What do we do with the reality that, that the mission of God might be both of these things? Right? It might be a, a call to harvest and new life uh, and, and excitement and, and the Holy Spirit filling his people with joy and power. But it might also provoke the, the, the sort of powers and principalities Paul will speak of. The, the roots of, of injustice and darkness and evil seem to push back against that growth at the same time. Are we, are we ready for the mission of God to look like that? Are we willing to actually continue in mission when, when the pushback comes, when the resistance shows up as well? Right? We, we know that we long to see a harvest of God's word, but are we also willing to, to work through the hardships that attend it? So I'm going to teach our way through chapter 14 this morning. Let me pray for us as we, we work through um, those passages today. Lord, we long to be in mission with you. We thank you that you are a God of mission, uh, that you go before us 
that there's nowhere where your spirit is not active and, and creating an audience and, and a place and a space for your word to be heard and to grow. We're grateful that your spirit goes with us into both the, the good and the hard of that mission. Pray as we receive from the book of Acts this morning and the faithfulness of your church in those days, Lord, that, that it would be an encouragement. It would also be a challenge to us for the mission in this place. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may all of our hearts, our applications, uh, the way we, we bring forth these words to life, may they be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to move kind of quickly because we have a lot of ground to cover in chapter 14. Um, but I, I want you to try and picture in your head, if, if you could see a map, I don't have a, a PowerPoint or visuals this morning, but we're again, we're in Asia Minor. We're up in the mountains, these, these cities that are three or 4,000 feet above sea level. And uh, they've, they've gone to the community of Poseidon, Antioch. And then throughout this chapter, they're going to move east and sort of southeast through through those mountainous regions. They're going to cover a few hundred miles. And it's in the region uh, that would, uh, in some cases, be referred to as Galatia. So if you think about the New Testament, you want to go back and read the letter to the Galatians. Uh, that's a letter that Paul would write to many of these communities um, some, some years after this mission has taken place. But the first uh, city we come to in chapter 14 is Iconium. Look at verses 1 uh, and following. First verse says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. And there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Again, we see this evidence there in the first verse that the word of God, the word of, of who Jesus Christ is and what he does has power, real power. Right? What N.T. Wright calls uh, these new creation communities come into existence wherever um, the word of who Jesus is, is, is proclaimed. And so it doesn't take long before people are responding to that in Iconium. There's a following, there's a community, there's a church that, that's uh, being brought into existence. But just like in Poseidon Antioch, it's also not long before resistance surfaces as well. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. It says that, that after this, this message had been proclaimed, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, or the leaders of the synagogue, others with the apostles, with Paul and Barnabas. There was a plot, a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country. So on the heels of, of a church forming again and people responding and the encouragement and the excitement of all that, we have hardship surfacing again. And we might wonder, why is there this polarizing response? Why could, could these communities that Paul and Barnabas come to be so kind of dramatically swinging back and forth between, on the one hand, this eager enthusiasm for the gospel Right? The people want to come to this message and, and live in its power. And then also this incredible hostility 
that the people would actually forcefully drive people out, drive Saul and Barnabas out, even, even threaten violence against them. I think it's, it's important for us to kind of think about what Paul and Barnabas are doing and the message that they're preaching. I don't think Paul and Barnabas are looking to stir up conflict. They're not looking to antagonize or, or provoke this kind of response. And in fact, their strategy in every city so far that they go to typically is to go to the synagogue first, right? Remember, Paul and Barnabas are Jews. They, they go to their own people uh, to share with them the hope of, of who Jesus Christ is, right? That he is the fulfillment, he is the Messiah that they have long been waiting for. And, and he, he proclaims that this messianic age has, has broken into our reality. But as Paul preaches in these cities, what he says about this Messiah is, is the source of controversy. It's who Jesus is. It's the nature of his kingdom that, that makes this so difficult to understand. Because the Messiah Paul is proclaiming is a Messiah who is crucified, right? The Messiah Paul is proclaiming was crucified by the Romans. And he was crucified and, and buried and, and rose to death in order to redeem not just the Jews, but also, Paul says, these, these Gentile communities as well. He's a suffering Messiah. And that's a pretty radical new take on the promises God had given to his people. Right, if Jesus, if, if Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Nazarene, this guy that lived in, in Galilee and then was crucified in Jerusalem and rose from the dead, if he truly is the Messiah, on the one hand, that's wonderful and powerful and life-giving. Right, there's resurrection power. But on the, on the other hand, it's, it's a terrifying message. It's a terrifying gospel. Because what if our lives, the lives of his followers, are also called to be like Jesus, to resemble the person we are proclaiming. We see that that actually is the case. As Paul and Barnabas proclaim the gospel in these cities in Galatia, they see both the resurrection power and the humiliation and suffering of the gospel. Right? They, they proclaim that Jesus has power over death. Jesus has power over darkness and, and the dominion of the enemy. And they see, it says in many of these cities, signs and wonders, people being healed, the Holy Spirit doing incredible things as, as testimony to that power of who Jesus is. But as they proclaim that same gospel, they proclaim a Jesus who was humiliated, right? who suffered out of love for his people. And that humiliation and suffering touches the life of Jesus' own disciples, too. Right now, Paul and Barnabas are harassed and opposed and resisted in the same way that Jesus was. Right, so their, their lives, the lives of followers of Jesus, begin to resemble the life of Jesus himself and his mission. So they're, they're expelled, in this case, again, from Iconium. And they move on. They trust the Spirit has a mission for them, and they continue further into the mountains to the city of Lystra. That picks up in verse 8. Let me, let me read part of that account. It says, In Lystra there was a man who sat lame, 
sorry, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth. He had never walked. But he listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him. He saw that he had faith to be healed, and he called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. It sounds a lot like what happened back in Acts 3 in Jerusalem with Peter. Verse 11, when the crowd, though, saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, because uh, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he wanted the crowd, he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from the heavens and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Yet even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So we're in a new city. We see a similar phenomenon happening here, right? The, the crowds are eager. They're enthusiastic. They see evidence that the Spirit's power is at work in, in those that proclaim Jesus' name. In this city, though, it's, it's a bit unique. There is apparently no synagogue in Lystra. Uh, and instead, this is a, essentially a, a pagan uh, or a, a Gentile city. And their response may seem unusual, almost kind of wild-sounding to our ears, but it actually accords pretty well with what we know about uh, this particular community from, from the historical record. There is actual uh, pretty ample archaeological evidence in Lystra of a temple to Zeus. You can go and see the remains uh, of that temple today. They've unearthed uh, numerous statues and inscriptions on those statues, uh, of Zeus and Hermes and prayers directed to both of these gods. And what's really interesting is, uh, is a myth. It's a legend that was recorded by um, the writer Ovid. He's a, he's a Roman who wrote a couple decades before uh, Paul would have shown up here in Lystra. And it's a, it's a legend or a myth uh, that is particularly located in this region, right in the hill country around Lystra. And in the, according to this myth, in the past, uh, Zeus and Hermes, right, these Greek gods, decided to, to come to the earth in human form. They, they disguised or, or hid themselves in human form. And they came among this, this region seeking lodging uh, among the households of, of these mountainous towns. And I think the, the legend says something like a thousand households turned them away, refused to give them a meal, refused to take them in. But finally, an, an elderly young, or an elderly young, an elderly woman and man, a couple, bring them into the house, uh, serve them a meal, and immediately the gods uh, transform their house into a temple to Zeus. 
They make this uh, husband and wife the priest and priestess of the temple, and they flood the rest of the region as an act of judgment for refusing to receive their, uh, ref refusing to offer hospitality to them. And so that, that myth or that legend was used to explain why Zeus was the patron god of this, this town, Lystra. And it also sort of explains what's going on in Paul and Barnabas's experience here, right? When they come into the city and they heal this lame man and, and some kind of clear power that, that not a, a normal human being would possess, the people think the gods have come to visit them again in human form, which is true, sort of, right? Paul, Paul says, well, yeah, okay, well, let me set the record straight here. And rather than receive their accolades or their worship, Paul sees this as an opportunity to help speak, to contextualize the gospel of Jesus for, for a pagan audience now. And his message essentially is, what if the, the power you see working through us to heal this lame man, what if, uh, if God has chosen not to make us gods, but is moving through mere human beings like, like Paul and Barnabas? in order that they might know who the living God truly is. And he says that, that God in, in times past has been patient with them, right? He's supplied them rain from the heavens. He's given them a harvest, all the good things that they enjoy as, as people. Our blessings from this God, common grace from this God. But now, now they are, again, just like he proclaimed in the synagogue, there's this new age of fulfillment. Now, even among the Gentiles, is time for a fullness of that message to be proclaimed, of who God is and what he's like. And even as the people are enthusiastic to receive and hear this teaching, right on, on the heels of it, we see hardship and resistance arrive. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch, which is Poseidon Antioch, and from Iconium, the places they, they had just been ministering. And they won the crowd over. And they stoned Paul, and they dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Right? The, the joy, the excitement of that moment now quickly turns to sorrow. And if we're, we're sort of keeping score on the mission of, of Paul and Barnabas that they've set out for in Galatia, right, so far they've been at three cities. They've left behind three churches. They've also faced incredible resistance and, and, and violent opposition on three occasions. And the last of these almost kills Paul. It says that they leave him for dead. They assume, they assume he, he couldn't survive the beating they've given him. But somehow, verse 20 says, the disciples in that place gather around the body of Paul. Whether they, they prayed and, and God works a miracle, whether they, they care for him and, and, and lift him up, we don't know. But it says Paul is able to get back up. He goes into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas leave for Derby, which is a city another 40 miles up into the mountains. And they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. I don't know about you, but if I were Paul or Barnabas, if I've been in three cities, almost died in the last one, every time have been opposed, by the time I got to the fourth city, I think I'd say, 
that's enough. You know, just, I'm going to lay low, I'm going to keep cool, I'm going to recover and rest until I can get back home. But I think Paul and Barnabas are more courageous than I am, and I think God is more gracious to them than, than I would have had the faith to believe. Verse 21, we're told that Paul and Barnabas get up and they share the gospel yet again. Fourth time. And again, a large number of disciples come to respond, come to live in the light and the hope of that message. But this time, the next verse doesn't have this mob scene. There's not persecution that breaks out. There's not resistance in Derby. In fact, Derby sort of seems to be that much-needed place of rest and renewal that they needed. But by now, likely if we kind of piece together the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas have been away from Antioch probably 18 months to two years. They've been gone a long time from their home church, their home community. And so I'm sure there, there's a sense that they want to go back and report on this mission and return home. But they had a couple options from where they're at. Again, we can't see the map this morning, but if you picture, they started out in Poseidon, Antioch, which is in the western part of this region, and they've been moving steadily east through, through each of these journeys. And so the, the fastest way back to Antioch, which is further east, would have probably been like a two or three day walk south to the coast, where they probably could have found a ship to sail back to Antioch. Or if they had chosen to, from, from the coast there, another three or four days journey would have brought them to Tarsus, which is Saul's hometown, right? It probably has some kind of community there. That would be the, the easiest way back. But when they leave Derby, the text doesn't say they go that way. Instead, they actually choose to reverse course. They go back on the western road, the Roman road, and they return to Lystra where Paul was just stoned. They go back to Iconium where they tried to kill him. And they go back to Poseidon Antioch where they were forcefully expelled from the city. And we're told that they willingly re-enter, they willingly go back on the road through all the hardships they had just faced. Why on earth would they do that? What would possess a person to make that choice? Well, I want to finish this morning with verses 22 and 23. It says that, that they returned, they went through these three cities, in each place strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And notice how they encourage them. This is, this is the, the message they preach in each of these towns. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of them, for, the, for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So they go back into each of these communities, I think because the mission of God matters more to them, right, than their own safety, than their own comfort, right? They, they care so deeply about the endurance of these new church communities that they're willing to endure whatever risk is, is, uh, is brought upon them by going back. 
And again, I think it's ironic that in those verses it says the encouragement they give in each place. This is their encouragement. You must go through many hardships. But those hardships are the route. They are in route. They are the way to and into entering the kingdom of God. They don't say we must go around many hardships. We must flee in the opposite direction of many hardships. It says we must go through many hardships. But expecting that as we go through them, right, the kingdom, the nature, the, the person, the new creation reality of who Jesus is will be revealed in his people. I want to pray for us in just a second, but I wanted to read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, which he would have written later, but I can't help but think he's reflecting on some of those experiences in Galatia. Listen to what Paul says about hardship and what it reveals, the, the way it reveals the kingdom in us. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power, the power of the Spirit working through his people, that all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. For we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, never destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We pray for us as a church this morning. Lord, you have placed an all-surpassing power, a treasure that we struggled even to fathom how, how powerful the spirit that, that lives and makes its home in us truly is. You've placed it in fragile, breakable, faulty human beings like, like me, like those gathered here this morning. But you've done it in order to demonstrate what you are like and what your kingdom is like. But you've done it for us to better understand who Jesus is. That if we share in the death of Jesus, if we carry his death in our bodies, the brokenness that he endured, the hostility that he faced, we will also know the glory of the resurrection. That that same power is now at work in us and in the church and in every community that calls upon the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One. Lord, would you lead us in mission? Or we, we want to see a harvest. We want to see men and women who have no clue of how much they are loved by you, encountering you, finding hope, in Jesus, or we want to see the things that are deeply broken and unjust and divided in this place brought under 
your lordship, Jesus. But Lord, help us to know that there will be resistance and hardship and difficulty. But where we experience that, all the more your power is at work in us and to sustain us and to encourage us. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.